All right, welcome back to the Curious Investor Podcast. We just finished recording an episode with Sarah Weaver. She's the co-author of the book, 30 Day Stay. Uh, it was such an interesting and amazing podcast that we just recorded with her. Uh, she's a digital nomad, like, which means that she travels the world, basically, and she manages all her real estate investments, uh, which range from short-term rentals to long-term rentals to mid-term rentals, which is the topic of her book. And uh, it was such an interesting conversation about how she was able to do all that. Yeah, she's a super well-versed person. Uh, she has multiple businesses, write, writes books, and has mo more books to write in the future. Um, has an events company. She manages all of her properties. She has a coaching program. Like, it's crazy. Like, super interesting. And, um, yeah, I think, like, one of the biggest points to take out of this um, interview is the time when we break that break out how to purchase a midterm rental um she really dives deep into the market research um how to look for properties how to analyze properties uh finding tenants and even managing the tenants so it's a full like outline broken out on how to purchase your first uh midterm rental yeah yeah and and like with with all that on her plate she's still able to travel the world enjoy her life in those places that she's traveling with like, of course, it takes a lot of work. Obviously, she must work so hard because like to have so many businesses like that and and to not be there to like see what's going on. Like you have to really be able to have your systems in place and to have your contacts ready to, ready on, on any moment's notice. She told, she spoke about a story that she was once at an event that she was running through her company and that one of her one of her tenants ceilings fell down. Like, I don't even know how that even happens, but like it fell down. And then she was obviously really worried and like was trying to deal with it but she called her plumber she called her drywall person she called i didn't even know who else she called she called all the right people and it was solved within 45 minutes it wasn't solved but like there was people already handling the situation within 45 minutes to an hour so like she already has the people and, and it was a worrisome moment but she has the people ready to go and she has her systems in place that really allow her to do this and it's really cool she has such an interesting story like she lives in guatemala or like she travels to Guatemala, she's traveled to Brazil, she's traveled to Portugal and like throughout the whole world. I remember I saw a writing uh, a piece of writing on her Instagram page that she says she's traveled to 44 different countries. Like how many people can say that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I wish I had that lifestyle. Uh, it's something I'm trying to build and eventually get to. Um, and yeah, I mean, she has a huge portfolio of 19 properties between long-term rentals, short-term rentals, and mid-term rentals. So she's a great person to learn from. And if you're interested in her coaching program, like that's definitely something to uh, to consider. Yeah. And uh, and if you want to uh, check out her book, the link will be in the description. She gave our listeners 10% off using one of the codes that will be listed down below. And uh, yeah, without further ado, I um, hope you guys enjoyed the episode with Sarah Weaver. It was an awesome episode. Um, yeah, please like subscribe comment on youtube rate us on spotify and apple Podcasts. that really helps us grow and be able to reach the people that we really want to network with and grow with and uh, learn from so yeah without further ado this is sarah weaver guys welcome back to the curious investor podcast my name is paulino marquez and i'm here joining my co-host philip costa today our guest uh is a vastly experienced real estate investor a business owner a speaker a real estate coach and one of the co-authors of the book 30 day stay published by bigger pockets we're so happy to welcome sarah weaver onto the show thank you for coming on thank you guys for having me 
Yeah, of course. Uh, to begin, uh, if you could please give us a little bit of background about yourself and uh, your investment journey. Absolutely. So I started investing in 2017. I had been in the real estate industry for two years at that point. So I was a real estate agent. I like to joke that I was a real estate agent for about five minutes because I realized if you're going to sell real estate, you probably need to live somewhere. And I am a perpetual traveler. So I've been traveling in some capacity for almost 10 years now. And that's when I started to get really interested in real estate investing because I thought, wait a minute, I could buy something and then people will pay me to live there and I can go live anywhere else in the world. Um, But then it took two years for me to actually do what I thought I wanted to do. So I bought my first property in 2017 and just kind of slowly built my portfolio. And then in 2021, I went from owning three units to 15 units in 92 days. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. So how are you able to grow your portfolio so quickly? Yeah, so a lot of it was it was a lot of like research and I was, you know, attending every mastermind webinar, reading all the books, listening to all the podcasts for a long time. Um, And so it was a lot of that, like, get ready, get ready, get ready. And then finally, it became apparent that I just needed to take action. And so in 2021, I set out to at least buy two properties that year. I had saved up a bunch of money by living really frugally. And I owned three units at that point. And I was cash flowing about $1,100 a month. And that money was just getting stocked away every month. And so that soon enough became my like uh, nest egg for my down payment. Um, but then... 2020 and 2021 caused a lot of competition for investors. And so it's one thing to say like, oh, I want to be a real estate investor now to actually getting under contract. And so it took a lot of focus. And then I'm happy to talk about the financing part because I'm sure a lot of your listeners are like, okay, but where should you get all this money or how does that work? Yeah, for sure. I would, lo- I would love to dive into to begin with your first deal because uh, you did say that you began as a real estate agent. Uh, a couple years before you bought your first property. Uh, So in 2017, when you finally decided to make that jump and buy a property, what property was that? How did you finance it? And then after that, if you don't mind explaining how you further uh, accumulated your portfolio. Absolutely. So that very first deal was um, in the suburbs of Kansas City, which is where I grew up. Um, But for anyone that doesn't live in their hometown, I'm definitely one of those people like I never thought I'd move back. I thought I'd travel the world. So it turns out that part was true. Um, But when it came to real estate investing, I realized that where I grew up was actually a really kick-ass place to buy properties because you could buy a house for, you know, $180,000 and then rent it out for at least $1,500, if not $1,800 a month, pretty easily, like off the MLS. And so I realized, okay, I'm going to go back home. So I was living in Denver, like a really nice, expensive city. And I bought in Kansas City, and I actually found the house by myself. I was driving for dollars. So I was living in Denver. I had a wedding to go to in Kansas City from a college girlfriend. And while my friends were pre-gaming, I was driving the neighborhood, knocking on doors, saying, hi, I want to move back to Kansas. Can Mm -hmm. I buy your house? And after about seven hours of that, it worked. Really? Wow. 
That's so that's like that's like like physical cold calling. That like you're just door knocking, going through every single na- like neighborhood. I was so how literally many... knocking on doors. <laughs> so what was that? What was so? Did you get like a ton of rejection, and then all of a sudden one person was like, "Yeah, I'm really trying to get sell at my house." Yeah. So yeah, everyone was like shutting their door on me. They thought I was crazy, <laughs> or they were like, "Oh, you're a cute little girl. Let me talk to you." And they're not actually interested in selling their house, right? And so it was a lot of rejection. I think I like stopped at Starbucks like three times just to like get my mojo back because it was exhausting. And I was like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever had. Meanwhile, my friends are texting like, sweet, where are you? Um, And I was like, okay, like one more hour. Like I'm going to do this for one more hour. I'd like to get at least like four or five more houses. I can do this. And I pull onto this street. And it was like one of those movie moments where like a car moved and I saw it and it was a sign in the yard. It was a for sale by owner sign. And it was as if like, if it was a movie, there would be like light, like beams of light coming out of the sign because I was like, this is it. And so I pulled in the driveway, I knocked on their door, they didn't answer. So I'm standing in the driveway calling the number on the sign and um, they don't answer. So I leave a voicemail. And then I'll never forget the woman across the street was playing with who I thought were her kids. I found out later they were her grandkids. So this woman and her grandkids are playing in the yard. So I walk over. I'm like, hi, I'm Sarah. I'm interested in like moving in this neighborhood. Do you like living here? It's always my favorite thing to ask neighbors is do you like living here? Because then you get all the gossip, all the information. And there's always a neighbor that like knows everything, like knows who's renovated their house, like who's getting a divorce. They know everything. And that wasn't this woman, but it was her daughter. Her daughter knew (laughs) all the gossip. And she told me, she said, oh yeah, like whatever, Susie and Bobby, they're selling this house. They're asking 215. And I said, I'm so sorry. Did you say 250? Like 250? She's like, no, no, 215, 215. And I was just like, in my head, I'm like, act cool, act cool, act cool. Like, <laughs> don't be shocked. Because they should have listed their house for like at least 230, maybe 240. Um, and long story short, I ended up seeing it that evening before I went to the wedding. And then I went back the next day with my dad and had a handwritten, like printed out contract. Not because I'm that old, you guys. I just knew that they were older and they would appreciate <laughs> it. And so, and then we sat at their kitchen table and they signed it. Oh my God. Wow. And so what do those numbers look like on the investment? Yep. So they were asking 215. I ended up offering 217, but then asked for a lot of seller contributions um, because I was trying to keep as much money as my pocket in my pocket as possible because I knew I wanted to do a pretty large renovation on this house. It was a three bedroom, one and a half bath. The half bath was upstairs and the half bath backed up to a closet. And so even with really limited like renovation experience, I knew I was like, sweet, I can bump the bathroom into the closet, turn that into a full bathroom. And then I can turn the attic space into a fourth bedroom. Um, So I wanted to keep as much money in my pocket. So I offered more money at close. Um, because obviously that gets, that just gets tied into your mortgage. Um, mm-hmm. and when we're talking $2,000, I mean, we're talking like dollars or pennies per month. Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked for full, um, seller contribution, um, like to cover all my closing costs and ended up getting that. I ended up getting a new 
furnace and an upgraded electrical panel. I negotiated that during inspection. Wow. Nice. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty good negotiator. Yeah, I, I was going like to say you're a kick-ass agent if that was yeah, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm a good negotiator. I'm bad at some things, but I'm really good at negotiating. Um, so by the time I closed on it, I think my down payment, like what I had to come to the closing table with was like $7,200. Wow. And I was prepared, like as a real estate investor, like first time, I was like, okay, this is going to cost like 30 grand. Mm -hmm. And so when at the end of the day, it cost me $7,200, I was like, holy shit. I was like, I'm rich. That's a home run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I did do exactly what I said. I took it from a three bedroom to a four bedroom. I turned the half bath into a full bath. So all of a sudden it was a four bedroom, two bath. And I rented each of the rooms out to different roommates or tenants. And I did the rent by the room strategy because I could charge more. That's super interesting. Like, I really appreciate the hustle that you had by going around knocking on people's doors and like first try, um, or at least first your first go around, you're able to find that deal. Um, so but that doesn't happen unless you have a, a motivation. Like what was your motivation? Why did you want to get into real estate? Like, what is that ultimate goal that you had? Yeah, I think back then I was not dreaming as big as I am now. Like I just was thinking, oh, it'd be cool if I bought a property maybe every two to three years and had, you know, I, I thought you'd get maybe $200 a month in cash flow. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. Like a couple thousand dollars a year. Nothing. It's not going to make me, you know, rich by any means, but it just will supplement. And because I lived like a backpacker lifestyle, I knew I was like, I don't need that much money to like, I, if I buy five rental properties, I could probably just retire um, and like move to Brazil, um, which by the way, I did do that. Um, and so we got to talk I, about that. Yeah. And so it, it was, it was not, um, I don't know, it wasn't this grand plan at the time. So if there's any, so if you guys like starting out or any of your listeners are like, whoa, like 19 units sounds like a lot. Like it did not start out that way. I was just like, I thought I'd buy like a house every three years. Very cool. So, so, so that's your first deal. It was a great deal. You, you managed to find a way to increase the value of the house by doing renovations, adding a bathroom, adding a bedroom. So how did you uh, go on to your second and third deals uh, that you said that you accumulated to the third. And then when you went from three to what you, you said before, 15 or 19, what was it? Yeah, I went from three to 15 in like Here's 92 days. And now I'm at 19 units, um, whatever that is, like nine months later. Yeah. Nice. So can you can you like explain how you went from to the three briefly and then explain how what did you do to get from three to 15? And that that's a lot to yeah. accumulate. In and that financing days. secret as well. And the financing. But... Yeah, totally. <laughs> so so I'll try to do this part as quickly as possible. So the first property house hack like did three percent down. As I said, it was like seventy two hundred dollars. Then I didn't buy something for two years. So two years later, I bought my second property, which was a duplex. So that's how I got to three units. That property, I also house hacked. So again, did owner-occupied conventional loan. It was an even cheaper property because I learned, oh, you can like make even more cash flow if you buy in more B-class, even C-class neighborhoods. So I bought a duplex, um, lived in the top unit with a roommate, and then rented out the bottom unit. And that was, bought that one for 180 maybe I think 181 um, and cash flow about $700 a month now. Same with my first property. My first property, I cash flow anywhere between $700 and $800 a month. They're all long-term tenants, um, so unfurnished. 
And then fast forward almost two years later, like a year and a half later in 2021, I house hacked again. So that was like my third house hack. I moved from the single family to the duplex, and then I moved into a fourplex. And so that fourplex was 320000 which sounds like a lot of money when you're going from 180000 but I only needed to bring 3.5% down because I did FHA, so that was $12,000. And wow. again, I've been living so cheaply and like really serious about saving money. Like I will say I'm very, very good at saving money. Um, I don't think I'm cheap, but I am frugal. And so um, like my down payments at that point had been $7,000, $5,000, and $12,000 across almost four years. So it's wow. for some of us, that's not very much money, right? And, and then what happened was I was looking in two different markets. I was looking in Omaha, Nebraska and Des Moines, Iowa. And I sent this text message to both agents. So like for boys, when, if you guys are dating and playing the field and you send the same text <laughs> to the same, to two different girls, it can get you in trouble. And that's what happened to me. I sent like the same text to the two agents. Like I'm committed to buying in Omaha. I'm committed to buying in Des Moines. Well, then they both brought like amazing deals. And I thought, oh, shoot. Okay. I was like, I don't know how to buy both at the same time. And I realized that the second property, I could use the Burr strategy. So I used a combination of hard money and private money to buy that property. <clears throat> so for those of you that are not familiar with the Burr, um, I went to a hard money lender, which is like an actual institution. They're these guys in San Francisco. But here's the kicker. They needed 20% down which was $80,000. And I was like, well, I had $80,000, but it almost like wiped out my bank account. And I didn't yeah. want to do that. And so I was like, shoot, what do I do? And then I realized, I was like, well, wait a minute, because it's hard money, they don't care where the down payment comes from. Whereas conventional, like you can't borrow your down payment if you're getting a conventional loan. But for hard money, they don't care where the down payment comes from. So I borrowed $80,000 from a friend from college and gave him 9% interest. And wow. then did a three-month renovation project um, and then refinanced. And this, you guys, was really stressful. Like anyone that has, has done a burr and like says it's really easy, frankly, I think they're psychotic or they're lying <laughs> because it was really stressful. Like, you know, renovations are taking longer than they say. It's, it's more money than you think it's going to be. And then the appraiser, you're just like throwing a Hail Mary, like hoping that it appraises for what you think it's going to. And thankfully for me, like it was just like the trip, like I did my renovations way faster than I thought. It cost less than I thought and it appraised for higher than what I calculated for. And so it was this yeah. killer deal. It was not a perfect burr. I think that's something that a lot of people think is that like every burr is like, it's only a burr if it's no money in the deal. I left about 22000 in the deal, but yeah. it appraised for $525,000. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And then awesome. you and then did you repeat this process throughout those ninety-two days to accumulate fifteen units? So so that would have been okay, so I bought the first three, then I bought a four unit, so now we're up to seven units. Then the the hard money, private money was actually two duplexes. Yeah. So that's another four units. So that got me to eleven units. And then um, same with the first property and you know how I knocked on the door. I knocked on the door of the fourplex next door to my one that I had just bought. 
and I convinced that guy to sell me his house. Wow. You are a expert salesman or saleswoman <laughs> because because that that seems so out of left field. Like I, I honestly have never met somebody who was able to con- like door knock and and get achieve so many deals. So like with that with that uh, accumulation of deals, like you're you're buying in multiple areas. Uh, where how are you managing these properties? Like wh- where are you or where are you staying? Are you traveling at this point? Yeah, at this point, I'm traveling like between the properties. I I think I spent I spent like three months in Mexico that year. Um, and then like other three months I was like beat bopping around between my units, like living on air mattresses while I was doing (laughs) renovation projects. Um, and then I self-manage everything. So for a while it was just me like earlier this year in January, I was back here and I'm in Guatemala right now. And I was in Guatemala in January and I was self-managing my property. So any Airbnb inquiry, I was on my phone any tenant requests, I was on my phone. And I'll never forget, I went on like an excursion into the jungle to see these ruins. And it was four hours. I was like, okay, surely no one's going to die like in four hours if I turn my phone on airplane mode. Sure enough, it's January. So middle of winter in Kansas and the furnace goes out on one of my properties. And so when I came out of the jungle, I turned my phone on which any business owners, like if you guys ever are away from your phone, you almost like hold your breath when you like turn it on. You're like, and sure enough, I needed to like deal with a furnace. And I think in that moment I said, okay, I need to hire someone. And so it still took about six months for me to hire someone, but I now have a full-time employee who answers all of the inquiries and and essentially is my in-house property manager. Yeah. So that is a lot on your plate. Um, So it's good that you started to delegate, but so one thing that you mentioned is that you were taking short-term rental inquiries. So what is what is the type of stra- uh, real estate investing strategy that you were implementing with these properties? So one thing that uh, before you came on the show, we know that you re- wrote the book, uh, 30 Day Stay, which is uh, very, focuses on mid- midterm yeah, rentals. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. And and uh, so I would like first, uh, if you don't mind explaining what that is exactly, but also like what is the, what is the range of, of uh, the type of real estate properties that you have? Absolutely. So, so at that point I owned 15 units and then this year, earlier this year, I bought four more. So now I'm up to 19 units and nine of the 19. So almost half or basically half are furnished. So I furnished nine units and I, I'm sure people listening are like, wait a minute, why would anyone want to own an Airbnb in Omaha, Nebraska? And I'll admit, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, who goes to Omaha? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And what I realized is there was a huge need for what's called the medium term rental. So 30 day stays are longer. They typically stay for one to three months. And I, I serve a lot of traveling nurses. And so I have traveling nurses who come and stay in my units. They work at the hospital for like three month contracts. And that's my tenant pool. So now I own nine of these units and I'm fully occupied with traveling nurses. Okay, that's awesome. So like since midterm rentals are is relatively new strategy, um, could you provide us with just like the pros and cons between uh, converting a long-term rental to a midterm rental and even a short-term rental to a midterm rental? Absolutely. So I think the biggest jump is to take it from a long-term to a medium-term because you have to furnish it. And then after you furnish it, you have to manage it. Whereas when I have a long-term rental, it was really easy for me to own three rentals or three units 
And during that time, I lived in Argentina, Mexico, Brazil, and then I lived in New Zealand for 15 months. And I self-managed three units from like 8,000 miles away. It was no big deal because the tenants would move in and they'd stay there for a year. However, when I started furnishing these units, when you go from a long-term to a medium-term, you pay for utilities. So there's some admin, like, of, of course, a lot of this stuff is set up on auto pay, but you still, you need to like do your bookkeeping. So there's some admin there with paying utilities, lawn care and snow removal. You have to have really reliable lawn care and snow removal because I don't know that the like grass is getting long or that the leaves need to be picked up. And I never know when it snows because I'm not there. So you have to have reliable lawn landscaping and then your actual tenant like communication. So any maintenance requests, any issue that they're having. Um, but then when you have medium term tenants, what I like is that you're only finding a new tenant every 90 days. So that's the biggest difference between medium term and short term. So I find a tenant, a nurse is going to move in for 90 days. So I have someone moving in like this Tuesday, for example, and she's going to move in. So I need to communicate with her how to get into the unit, prep her on what to do. But then ideally, I don't hear from her for at least 90 days. Um, whereas a short term rental, you're going to have tenants moving out every two to three days and you have to coordinate all of those cleanings, all of the tenant check-in. Did they make it in okay? Do they know how to use the remote and the furnace and all these different things? So that's the biggest difference between the medium term and the short term rental. Okay, awesome. I'd like to play like a little bit of a scenario. Like I'm a new investor and I want to get into midterm rentals. Um, so I want you to coach me on how to do that. Uh, so the first part would be market research. Um, what kind of criteria do you look for to designate a market as a good midterm rental market? Absolutely. The really nice thing is that there's so many different ways you can do this. If you are in a cool location, that's a very loose term, but let's say that you have a three bedroom in Austin, Texas, you probably could rent to a family that wants to move to Austin, but isn't ready to buy yet. And so they need a furnished rental. Um, or you could rent to someone like me, a digital nomad who like wants to live in Austin for three months. Um, so any like property type is going to work for that. The other property type that makes it hard to research is, is insurance inquiries. So this is something that um, I haven't personally done, but it's really popular. So let's say that something terrible happens and your house is flooded or it's burned down, your insurance company will place you into another home. And so that's the, like a property type that you could, or a tenant type that you could target. And frankly, you could do that in any market. So then if we're just talking about medium or like the traveling nurse tenants, you want to look for hospital complexes. Um, you can research like if the hospital is going to have an influx of traveling nurses. Um, but that's why I like doing hospital complexes where there's three to four hospitals in one area. And that's what I've done. So all of my properties are within five miles of major hospitals because I wanted to target travel nurses. What's interesting is that you could do the same thing with seasonal workers. So we have a lot of the Amazon warehouses. They're having seasonal workers come in. So you could buy a property near one of those. Um, even large construction projects. A friend of mine owns a medium-term rental in Waco, Texas. And she's only had construction workers live in her property. That's super interesting. Um, I guess another thing that we should always look at and when you look at a market is the supply and demand. I know yeah. 
it seems pretty difficult to find that just because it seems like a new space and there isn't that much data on that. Uh, but if you could shine some light on different techniques that you use or different data sources that you use um, to come to a conclusion where, okay, there's a need here for us to provide uh, midterm rentals. Absolutely. I rely heavily on the website Furnish Finder. So if you go to furnishfinder.com, you can see other MTR listings in your area. If you go to furnishfinder.com forward slash stats, it's a really comprehensive database of all the medium-term rentals as well as the inquiries that they get. It's not as good as AirDNA. You're not going to be able to see actual revenue in your area by property type. It's not aggregated data at that level because Furnish Finder doesn't have bookings through Furnish Finder. I'm usually taking them off the website into a veil, um, like a property management website. So with that being said, it's not flawless because you're only seeing that, you know, there might be a two bedroom down the street from your house that's listed for $2,000. But unfortunately, we don't know how occupied it is or what he's actually renting it for. Um, but that's a good way to start. Some. Okay. And, and so like, uh, screening tenants, uh, for midterm rentals, like, are you, do you have some certain criteria when bringing those people in? Of course you explain the types of jobs these people have, but do, are you running any sort of credit on them? Are you looking at their income? Are you like, what is, what is the tenant screening process like? Yeah. Great question. If they're a traveling nurse, I'm really confident that they've already had all of the background checks, you know, criminal background, and fingerprints for any hospital that they're going to work at. So if they're a traveling nurse, I don't do any additional background check. What I do is I ask for proof of employment. So I want to see their contract. Um, I'm gonna, then I'm going to see that's proof of income as well. I want their identification. And then I want to talk to one of their previous landlords. And so I actually do reach out and speak to their previous landlord. Um, and there has been one like reference check where they were like, no way, do not like rent to this person. Um, and so I'm really glad that I take that extra step. If the tenant is not a traveling nurse, then I am going to put them through a background check like my long-term tenants. Okay, great. And then, so after the market research comes the property search. Um, so when you go in one, after you identify a market, uh, what characteristics do you look for in a property for an ideal, uh, midterm rental? Is it a larger home, a smaller home? Is it proximity to a certain location? Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's going to depend on the strategy. So if I'm catering toward the insurance inquiries, then I'm going to want to go for like a bigger, nicer home in a nice area. Um, if I'm catering towards digital nomads, well, then like where's like a cool neighborhood that people are going to want to stay in? They're probably not going to want to stay in like two hours outside of town or, or wherever the main hub is. Um, whereas for me, I knew I was like catering traveling nurses. So I wanted one bedroom, one bath or even two bedroom, one bath units. And so the fourplexes that I purchased, they all have one bedroom, one bath units. And then all of the duplexes that I've purchased are all two bedroom, one bath units. Okay, great. And then so when you do find a property or you look at a property, do you analyze every single one of them? Or do you have like a rule of thumb that you kind of follow to figure, okay, this might be a good investment or not? I've gotten to a point where I can analyze, if I have the information that I need, I can analyze a property in like less than 10 minutes. And so the piece of information that I need are um, how much can I rent this for? And I'm usually getting that from my investor-friendly agent 
or because I'm, I am in three markets, but I'm have my pulse or I have the pulse of those three markets so tight that I know like what two bedrooms and three bedrooms would rent for on as a medium term rental. So I can calculate that really quickly. So the information that I need from my agent is upfront renovation costs and then property taxes, which either they or I can get on the internet. And then I need estimated insurance. But once I have purchase price, renovation, um, market rent, property taxes, and insurance, I can analyze a deal in about six minutes. Okay, awesome. So yeah, that's actually the next stage I wanted to get into the property analysis. Um, So you mentioned that you are now experienced enough where you know how to calculate uh, these investments pretty quickly. Uh, So do you use any resources to calculate income and expenses? Now, expenses being um, the monthly expenses and also the furnishing costs uh, to to bring into a, a new unit? Yeah, at the beginning, I was having to do all of that manually. Now I just know that it's going to cost about $8,300 to furnish a two-bedroom because I've furnished enough of them. Um, Because in addition to buying all of that real estate, I've also started three small companies, um, one of them being Aria Design Services. So my company, Aria, we actually furnish Airbnbs for investors all over the country. And one of our process, like the very first step in our process is we'll analyze the deal for you. And so we'll analyze the property for you, telling you what we think it's going to get for long-term, medium-term, short-term to help you determine what you're going to do with the property. Then we will furnish it for you. And so because I've furnished, I mean, this year alone, I think I've furnished 35 units. Um, I know exactly how much it costs to furnish like a two-bedroom, three-bedroom, four-bedroom. I ask things like, what floor type does it have? Because I know rugs are going to add like an extra $300 a room. Is there outdoor space? Because outdoor furniture is expensive. Um, I just have all of that information. And so if anyone listening is like, okay, that's great for Sarah, but what do I do? Just reach out to me. I'd love to help you guys. If anyone DMs me on Instagram, I'm more than happy to give you that information. Okay, perfect. And then um, so as far as like income, um, do you use Furnish Finder to get an estimate of what a value for a room would be or do you have another resource that you use for that yeah i'm using so first i'm analyzing everything as a long-term rental because like if the numbers are good as a long-term rental then i don't even stress if it's going to work as a medium-term rental so i analyze everything as a long-term rental i'm getting rental information usually from property managers um i always think that there's like two different types of people so like Paulino, when you go to, let's say, like Austin for a boys weekend, like, do you Google like best restaurants to eat at? Or do you or do you call a friend that lives in Austin and you're like, hey, what's the best restaurant to eat at? That's preferred. If you got that, that's for sure. That's definitely preferred. It's funny. So that's preferred for you and I. But my my business partner with Aria Kendra, she's like, no, she's like, I don't want to talk to humans. I want to Google top 10 restaurant. And so there's two types of researchers. There's researchers that want to research on the internet. And then there's people that want to just talk to someone. I am definitely the want to talk to someone person. And so what I've done is I've built relationships with property managers where I can now text them and say, hey, looking at a two bedroom, here's the address, 123 Main Street, thinking that I could get 950. Is that correct? And ideally, I'm getting an answer like within 12 hours from them. And then I'm not spending any time researching on the internet. I might verify what they're saying, but I'm just not a huge proponent of, I don't want to spend hours researching a property until I've already gone under contract. 
And so I like to do things as quickly as possible and I delegate as much as I can. Okay, great. And then as far as expenses, um, what are the differing expenses between long-term rentals, mid-term rentals, and short-term rentals? The, the biggest difference between my long-term and my furnished is utilities, um, of course, furnishing costs, and then things are going to break. Um, you know, ideally with Airbnb, it's actually really easy to like claim things. Someone broke something just last week and I was just able to put in a claim and they reimbursed me, which was really neat. Um, but it doesn't always work out that way. And so there's going to be something where, you know, two guests later, you realize that two guests ago, someone must have taken a towel. Well, you're just going to have to buy new towels, right? Um, so you need to account for that. I find that the turnovers are actually less because when I have a turnover of a long term, I'm having to paint walls, clean carpets, maybe even switch from like switch out the flooring. Whereas you're not doing that in your medium term rentals. So I find the repairs to be I, I always do five percent. So I do I set aside five percent every month for um, capital expenditures and then another five percent every month for maintenance and repairs. And that's been plenty across all 19 units. Okay, perfect. So we found the market, uh, we found the property, we analyzed it. Now we have it under contract. Now we got to get tenants in it. So I know you touched a little bit about how you get them, but could you just reiterate uh, what resources or sites that you use to find tenants? Yeah, I put them on, I put list on Airbnb. And you, there's a really nice, you like click a button and you can make it so that it's 30 days or more. Um, it's like a 30 day minimum. So I put it on Airbnb first. Um, it's the easiest, it's free um, to list. And then I also put it on Furnish Finder. Furnish Finder costs $99 for the whole year. Um, and then they don't take out any fees. So that's an even better deal. So between those two sites, I'm fully occupied. I'm not listing anywhere else. I don't use direct booking. I don't use VRBO. I just list on those two websites. Okay. So you don't reach out to like hospitals or insurance companies. So they all just come inflow to those sites and then you, you're able to put a lease on that. Exactly. Okay, great. I mean, that's, that's awesome to, to know that there's that much demand in that area. Um, yeah. That's really cool. So, so it seems pretty easy to maintain that occupancy pretty high. Like how often are you actually uh, taking in inquiries? Like how far in advance are you starting to look again for the next tenant? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's awesome if they could reach out 30 days ahead of time, it's less stress. It's, you know, a no brainer, but most of them are doing it two weeks out. And so for example, I have actually four uh, units coming vacant in the month of December um, and so the last like two weeks, my employee has been like really hustling, messaging people on Furnish Finder. We've been like adjusting pricing on Airbnb and thankfully we've got um, all of the units occupied. Okay, perfect. And then last section is managing the tenants and that relationship. Um, like how active are you communicating with your tenants and, um, is it, more or less than short-term rentals and how like how active are you with that and and also replenishing like supplies is that something that you take into account yeah the replenishing of supplies my cleaners handle that um and so every time they clean they either like go there ready with you know extra paper towels toilet paper shampoo that kind of thing or they're messaging me in panic oh we need to order this right away <laughs> um and so they're handling that 
But as far as like actual inquiries, um, it's going to depend on the units that you buy. So my properties, like the one that I took down to the studs and I renovated, like that has significantly less maintenance problems because basically almost all the systems have been replaced. Whereas I bought a property that, oh my gosh, like it feels like every three weeks there's something wrong with this stinking property. And so it's really going to depend on the type of unit that you purchased. Um, like if the, the plum, if your plumbing is really old, then you're going to always have plumbing issues mm-hmm. um, unless you go to the drastic route to replace them. And so it's going to depend on the type of property you buy. And then, of course, how many properties you had. Like when I had three units, I, it was no big deal self-managing from all over the world because like maybe something happened every four months. Whereas now with 19 units, I mean, something happens at least every 10 days. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, the larger scale that you have, the more probability you have something breaking, right? So that makes yeah. complete sense. And, and then, I bought some old, really old property. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> increasing your odds. Um, so how often are you actually having the cleaners go out to the properties to, to clean them? Just during turnovers. Oh, just turnovers? Okay, so one, like once every three months or so? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, so you, you pointed out uh, that like you were saying that it was easier to manage three properties uh and, and from afar and now that you were telling me before that you live this nomadic nomadic lifestyle you're a digital nomad is what you were saying yeah. um how what is that like why did you decide to live this type of lifestyle and and like wh- like how, how is that living that way and managing properties from afar yeah it um it definitely takes a lot of like thick skinned and compartmentalizing so when you're out, um, like I was, I can think of a perfect example. It was June. I was actually here in Guatemala again. I keep coming back to Guatemala this year. <laughs> and I was, I was at a flea market with um, a bunch of real estate investors because I also own an events company now. So I was hosting a, an, a, an investor retreat and all of the investors were here. We were out at a market and I get a panic text message. This is right before I hired my full-time employee. And I get a panic text message the ceiling in her bedroom fell to the ground. Like, I thank God no one was in. So oh my I mean, God. first response was like, is everyone okay? Like, is anyone injured? And like, okay, no one's injured. All right. And so I'm at the market. I'm trying to like entertain my clients that are the real estate investors. And I'm trying to like handle this as well. And I'm just like, okay. I was like, I can't do both. So I I told everyone, like, listen, guys, I'm going to meet you guys at this cafe in three hours. You're on your own. Good luck. Use Google Translator. You'll be fine. And I <laughs> took a $2 Uber back to the Airbnb, and I just went into solutions mode. I, like, called my handyman. I called my drywall guy. I called my plumber. I called this person. I called the tenant again to calm her down. And I got everything taken care of, like, within 45 minutes. Wow. And I was like, okay, like, that sucked. That was not fun. It's not ideal. This is going to cost me money. But I opened up my bank account and I was like, we're good. There's money in that property's savings account. Like this is a fixable problem. No one's hurt. And the tenant is like over the moon about how responsive I'm being instead of being upset with me. I was like, okay, let's see how many days that lasts. Um, But I, you know, I just took care of everything. And was I bummed that I was like missing out on hanging out at the market in the afternoon? Yeah, sure. But I met up with them, like, you know, like I said, three hours later and had a mezcal in my hand and was having a great time, like on a Tuesday in Guatemala. And I realized like, this is so cool. Like 
yes, it's not ideal to get a text message that the ceiling's like literally falling to the ground, but everything's fixable and everything's figure outable. That's so important to have that type of mentality when you're doing stuff like that from afar. Um, it's like, that's an, I feel like that's an acquired personality trait to, I feel like you have to go through those quote unquote negative moments to be able to be calm in the future instances. I know that was probably so scary, but I'm sure you're more than prepared for the next moment. Uh, being an optimist seems to be, uh, like the, one of the most important personality traits, traits when it comes to, uh, remotely managing your properties. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of research out there that the most successful people, you know, they're not the smartest, the most physically fit or the richest, but they have the most grit. And so it's really hard to teach grit, but I can tell you, I have a lot of grit. That's awesome. Yeah. So like, uh, to, to even like continue just real quick on the, uh, the nomad lifestyle, uh, like, so like, do, do you love traveling? Is that why you do it? Like, do you want to travel the world? Is that something that like, is that the reason why you're doing it? What, what is the reason why you're, you're traveling the world? Yeah. Now, it, now it's just like the best addiction that I have. And so it, it's so fun because like every, you know, every four or five days I'm somewhere new or I'm meeting new people and you just never know what's going to happen. And so I didn't set out like into the real estate industry to like own an events company, but there was enough people asking me like, oh my gosh, you travel. It's so cool. I want to travel. And I would tell them everything. Like I do credit card hacking. I use points. I am a, like, I'm a cheap traveler. I splurge on experiences and save on accommodation. And I teach these people these things. And then six months later, I'd follow up with them and guess how many flights they had booked. How many? Zero. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, gosh, this is so frustrating. Like, why are people not traveling? And so I realized that if I invited them on a trip, would they, or I, I thought like if I invited them on a trip, would they come? And my very first trip sold out. I asked like 11 people, I invited 11 people and nine of them said yes. And the other two were just like scheduling conflicts. And so I have hosted five investor events this year and I do them all over the world. And so now I will like have an event in like Guatemala, for example, I just ended an event two days ago. And then I give myself like two to three weeks in that location on my own to just chill and explore. Yeah. So you have a, it's, it's cool that you build so many businesses and, and now have a book that you read, you wrote and uh, is published by bigger pockets, uh, 30 day stay. Would you like to give us a little bit of background about that book and who that audience is? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for asking. So, um, I met Ziana McIntyre. She's another like avid traveler and real estate investor. And we realized that we both love this medium term rental strategy and that there, there's not very many people talking about it. Um, short-term rentals and Airbnbs is getting a lot of attention. Um, but we love the medium-term rental strategy because it's less competition. So my competition on Furnished Finder, like they're not as beautiful of listings as mine. And so I'm able to get more per month than my competition. And then we also are seeing a huge increase in regulations around short-term rentals. And so if you bought something like in the Poconos, and then all of a sudden the Poconos is saying, hey, no more short-term rentals. Well, if that's the only way that your property is going to cash flow, you could be in big trouble. Mm-hmm. And so we really wanted to shed light on the medium term rental strategy. And because we, her and I both buy long distance. So I'm buying from not only like sometimes I'll be abroad and I buy in the U.S. 
or I'll even be like living in one city and buying in another. So everything I do is long distance and I self-manage everything. And so really wanted to show people that it is possible. You can buy real estate anywhere and you could self-manage if you want to. And so we cover all of that in the book. For really experienced investors, you're going to really enjoy parts of the book and parts of it, we go really way back to the beginning. Like we're talking about how to calculate cash on cash returns. So if you're a new investor, the book is really written for you. And if you're an experienced investor, I, I encourage you to check out the chapters that make sense for, for you. I really wanted the book to be one where you're putting in sticky notes and using it as a resource. Like we don't skip any of the details. All of the questions that I ask, like landlord referrals, that's in there. The process of how I screen tenants, that's all in the book. Very cool. And uh, so like the, your book was published by Bigger Pockets. Like how did you get, how did you build that relationship and how, how did you, how were you able to get that publishing deal? Yeah, it was, it was a, like a series of like fortunate events. So I was asked to speak at a real estate meetup. Um, people think it's interesting that I live abroad and buy properties in the U.S. So I was on a panel um, talking about real estate investing and uh, publishing happened to be in the audience. Like Bigger Pockets Publishing was in the audience. I thankfully didn't know that, or I'm sure I would have been like sweating. Um, but I, I really, I, you know, sometimes when you go to a presentation, or I don't know if you guys have ever spoken at a presentation, sometimes you leave a presentation, you're like, meh, that was okay. This was not that. Like, I nailed that presentation. It was, I was super, everyone was laughing at my jokes. Like, it was perfect, right? And afterward, I approached publishing. And at that point, in both Ziana and I, we had already spoken to them and mentioned that we were interested in working with them. And I really think the fact that I happened to just speak at this meetup in Denver, which is where Bigger Pockets is uh, located um, or headquartered, that really was like just kind of the nail on the coffin. Like I, that's, I knew I was going to get the book deal at that point. But leading up to that, um, it really was as simple as contacting them. So if there's anyone listening, if you guys ever want to write a book, um, a lot of people are like, how did you do it? And it's like, well, I, I applied. Like I sent them, I sent them an idea. Then they tell you their whole process. You had to, I had to write a really extensive, uh, like actual book proposal that took weeks to prepare. It was tons and tons of research, basically proving to them like why this was a good, viable, marketable idea, um, and the entire outline. And so even before we got the book deal, like, um, solidified, we had written a really extensive outline, which ended up being the outline of the entire book. That's so cool. And I think like a lot of your story is built on kind of like not being afraid to put yourself out there and like not being afraid of rejection and make sure you, you're communicating with people that and, and speaking to as many people as you can networking. I think that's like a very valuable lesson for anyone here that's looking to really gain something out of this interview is that listen, they'll be afraid to speak with people like they're more than willing to talk. I mean, I definitely suffer from that. Like we're like being afraid to go speak to somebody like about like something that I would like to do. But mm -hmm. I don't know, like your, your story is inspiring. And uh, it's it shows that if you do that and you like to get yourself out of your comfort zone, that good things happen. Yeah. And I think I think you're so right. I had this really incredible experience that I didn't know at the time was going to like shape like the rest of my 20s. But I my very first job was an internship with Sports Illustrated. Oh, wow. And and I got the job because I asked my professor 
to like give me good opportunity. Like I was like, Hey, I really, I don't want to be small time. I want to be big. Like I want to work for the New York times or some like amazing publication. I was, I was a journalism major and I was very, like very direct with my professor. So when a sports illustrator photographer came to the university, he immediately was like, okay, Sarah Weaver, I'm going to give this opportunity to you. Nothing came of it. Like, you know, I shot some photos. They did end up on SI.com, which was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing came of it. And then a year later, I was in a job I hated. And I was like, huh, I wonder if I, I was Facebook friends with the, with the photographer. I was like, I wonder if I message him, like what would happen? And so I just was like, honestly, it was probably, I was working at Oktoberfest. I was probably tip, or I was at Oktoberfest. He's probably tipsy. <laughs> I like sent him a message and I was like, I'm going to come work for you. And, and like, exactly to your point, I'm like never really afraid of rejection because like what worst case scenario, he was going to say no. And I'd be exactly in the same place that I was. Right. Um, but he said yes. And so I like had my dream internship with sports illustrated. And I think from then on, I just was like, you don't know unless you ask. That's so cool. Yeah. That's very inspiring. And, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people will resonate with that. Uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, so to end the podcast, we always do uh, these three questions at the end. It's one personal, one professional, and one random. So Phil, if you could take the first personal. Yeah, the personal question is, uh, what ha- habit or trait are you working on to better yourself? Oof, my fitness and my health. So the terrible thing about being nomadic is there's no routine. It's a lot of like saying yes to going to dinner, going to happy hour. Um, and so definitely like my physical health has taken a beating the last couple of years. And so really working on improving that because if you don't have your health, you have nothing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. And I, I would agree with that. That's something that, uh, I struggle with too, because like I tend to get lazy and, uh, and if you, and if you do like, if you are exercising, you are taking care of yourself, uh, your mind is a little more clear, but again, it's so hard to like build that into your routine, especially like, like what you're saying with being a digital nomad. So like when you're out basically in the beautiful areas of the world, the last thing you want to do is exercise. You just want to have fun. Well, yeah. So like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, I'll be completely transparent. So it's, it's about to be 8 PM here and I have a date at the bar at 8:30, And so <laughs> like, it's definitely not in line with taking care of my health by any means. Um, but definitely having a lot of fun. <laughs> That's so awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> hope it goes well. <laughs> thank, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the the one professional one is uh, where do you see yourself professionally in five to ten years? Yes, oh, I love this question because I have a really clear path. So um, so I have the events company, and um, anyone that wants to do an events company, uh, it's amazing, but it, it's not going to make you rich. Um, events are very expensive. Um, so one of the reasons I'm doing the events is because I'm building my network of incredible people. So not only are these people like then later becoming clients and something else, like maybe with Aria design, I also have a coaching program. So maybe they become my coaching students. But what I see is that I'm spending probably the next three to four years going on incredible adventures all over the world. And I'm building this really incredible network of people that later when I decide that I want to go bigger and do syndications and capital raising, this will be the group of people that I raise capital from. And so everything I do is very intentional. Um, Like I started um, coaching and speaking. So I speak in real estate brokerages about real estate investing, convince them that they should invest in real estate, and then they join my coaching program. 
Then they're in my coaching program. I convince them they should own a medium-term rental out of state. So then they use Aria Design Services to furnish their rental. Then I'm going to make you guys so rich. You're going to say, Sarah, I have all this time on my hand. What should I do? And I'll say, well, we're going on an African safari in June. You guys should come with my events company, Invested Adventures. (laughs) And then we're going to do this for probably three, four, probably four years. And then personally, like I'm ready to fall in love and make babies. So I don't want (laughs) to be working 40 hours a week like I am now. Um, so that's when I'll probably want to like start raising capital and start doing bigger deals like syndications and apartment complexes. That's so cool how you're able to plan that far in advance. And like you have a pretty (laughs) sick ecosystem of how to like follow people through that funnel uh, to your end goal. Like that's that's really awesome. Um, Last question. is And I got a and I got a few, few more books in me. So I, I've already, I've, I already know what my second book's going to be. So sick, sick. <laughs> awesome. Excited. Um, last question. Um, where has been your favorite place to live in as a digital nomad? Oh, that's a great question. Probably Mexico city, Mexico. So it gets a lot of bad rap. Um, it's 20 million people. So it's the like most populated city in North America. Um, it's polluted. It's not as polluted as like a Hong Kong or Beijing, but there's pollution. There's crime. Like there, there is parts of it where there's crime, but you take any large city in the U S and there's crime. Um, there's no beach. So people think it's funny. You'd like live in Mexico with no beach. And I'm telling you, it's like the best city in the world. It has this like beautiful energy. You can afford to like live a lifestyle that I frankly can't afford or can't justify in the U S like I can have a massage every week. I can get all the things done that I want. Um, and the people that are attracted to live in Mexico city are just the absolute best. Like, my closest friend is an incredible, talented photographer. Her girlfriend's like a director. Uh, her cousin like has movies on Netflix. And so my like crew in Mexico City is just like incredibly talented, well-traveled people. Um, so there's just this amazing thing that happens when you go to Mexico City. That's so cool. The one place that I, w- I want to ask if you've been to, have you been to Portugal? Oh, I love Portugal. Yeah, we're Portuguese. So like we go all the time. So like that's, uh, that's where our families are from. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, uh, I've i spent time, I've spent like two weeks in Porto, two weeks in Lisboa, and like, oh man, I was only supposed to spend like a couple of days in Lagos, but mm-hmm. I ended up spending like three weeks there. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Portugal is just an incredible place to be. Like, we try to go every year, right, Phil? Like, I, I mean, like, he, his, he goes to see his family, I go to see mine, we try to stay for a couple of weeks, as much as we can. E, e farli português? Yeah, yeah, nós falamos português, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Like, in, in, I always say, entendi nada, entendi nada. Yeah, you have a Brazilian <laughs> I, accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I lived in Brazil for three months. <laughs> that's so cool. All right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, if, is there, how can people find out more about you and get in touch with you? Do you have anything to plug? I know you have your book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, reach out, you guys. I would love, love, love to hear from any of your listeners. Um, I really do read all of my DMs on Instagram. It's taking me longer to get back to people, but I really do read them. So the best place to reach out to me is Instagram. It's Sarah D. Weaver. You can also check out anything that I mentioned today is at sarahdweaver.com. And then your listeners get 10% off um, my book. If they buy it at Bigger Pockets. the promo code is just my name. So Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. They get 10% off. And I hope to hear from you guys. Awesome. Thank you so much again for, for coming on. This was an absolute pleasure. And uh, I hope to speak to you very soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching us on YouTube, hit that like button, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. You can also follow us on Instagram at CuriousInvestFI. All this helps support our podcast. Ciao! Ciao!